Hello, everyone, and welcome to season three of the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. I'm Erin, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Steve. And today Hello. we'll be talking about fall of a democracy. We'll be talking about a once great institution being corrupted by madmen with ridiculous ideas and notions. But anyway, enough about Arsenal. Let's start off, first of all, talking about the Taliban. So the Taliban, Aaron, the Taliban, right? Yeah, so what, what about them? Interesting, inter- interesting movements in the Middle East uh, the past two weeks. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know whether the, surely our listeners have known, but just to give you a recap, the US has basically officially pulled out uh, of Afghanistan entirely. And uh, supposedly it was meant to be given to the interim government or this, the, the government at the time. Um, but within the space of a week, a week and a half, the Taliban have, has managed to take over the entire country. Um, and it seems like it was relatively peaceful. It seems like the, um, the uh, government position was not to fight. Uh, the troops seemed to just, you know, give the keys over, which was uh, a bit funny. And uh, there's been an uproar in the US political sphere. Obviously, it's, it's going to look bad on Biden. Um, of course, the... Uh, the other parties are going to use that as a clutch against him. But I guess, Aaron, f- first question is, like, were you surprised by it? When, when it happened, did you think, oh, this was going to happen? Or were you completely shocked that, you know, wow, I can't believe the Taliban took over? Well, to an extent, obviously, you are you are a bit shocked that, you know, they took over so easily and so quickly as soon as the Americans left. But in another way, you can't be too shocked because, you know, it's not like they beat the Taliban, did they? I mean, they were there for mm. how many years? They, uh, 20 think, years. Uh, yeah, 20, 20 years, right? Yeah. So they've been there for 20 years at the very least. Um, and they it's not like they beat the Taliban. So then withdrawing, I don't really understand what the full process behind withdrawing was. Because, mm. you know, withdrawing to me suggests that, okay, we've won the war now. We've done what we're going to do and we're leaving, but you, the Taliban was still there. So obviously there was always going to be this risk. And uh, yeah, like within, as you said, within like a week, Taliban took over and now they've re, um, you know, instated their own government. And mm. yes, yeah, it's, it's worrying the developments of what's going on, what's going on there. But uh, I thought it was an inevitability in my opinion. Um, mm. I mean, the whole, the, you know, the whole thing with the Talib- relationship between the Taliban and the U.S., you know, it's not black and white, let's be honest. Uh, we know where the relationship started. Uh, it was the US's idea, actually, to fund this group. And then they turned on them. So, you know, and I after... Believe, to give it some context, uh, the Mujahideen mm-hmm. uh, were given funding by the Americans in order to fight uh, the USSR. And mm. uh, there's been splinter groups coming out of the Mujahideen, which has, you know, eventually led to the formation of Al-Qaeda, which obviously... Uh, Bin Laden was a part of Bin Laden was a part of Mujahideen as well. And, you know, there's been these splinter groups coming out since then in the Middle East. Uh, and, mm. yeah, the Taliban kind of emerged, I guess, uh, following the withdrawal of the Soviet troops in uh, 1989, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, it's close to the, they started off in the southwest of the country around the Pakistani border. And, yeah, with, with the years that have gone by, they've kind of uh, grown in strength, really. I don't really, I don't really think 
that uh, they've been weakened actually by the Americans being there. I mean, I know they had taken control of most of the country in like, I think 1998 or something. And then obviously the Americans came, yeah. uh, basically took them out of power in like 2001. But then since then, it's just been a back and forth kind of, kind of conflict. What's your thoughts on the fact that the Americans couldn't take out the Taliban? Because I do have a theory on this. Well, look, if you look at the uh, the history of Afghanistan, no one has ever been able to take it. Literally no one. Um, unless it was a coalition, which was like an agreement, uh, you mm. know, when the Persians were there, etc. No one has ever been able to take it from the time of Alexander the Great to the Brits, which uh, if you know the history... There was a very, very bad pullout of the Brits uh, from Afghanistan. Th- hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of the retreat. Um, it's quite a famous one. And you move yeah. forward, you know, with the Soviets and you move forward with the Americans, it was bound to happen. And I think what's really understated is the geographical complexity of the region and how difficult militarily it is to lock them down. Um, it's just pretty much impossible. So unlike in Iraq, where they had... I believe better success in my opinion, because mm. you can see Iraq is still destabilized in a sense, and um, Afghanistan was just a pure loss. And uh, it's a shame that they ever went there because a lot of you know innocent lives were lost on both sides. Um, yeah, and uh, it's, it's it's a bit tragic in, in my opinion. So my my kind of approach to it is, um, what is success for America in the Middle East? I mean, do you personally think mm. that being successful in the Middle East for America would be that Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, um, you know, Iran, Syria, whatever, these countries mm. are thriving democracies with good, uh, you know, uh, mm. good uh, economies. I don't think that that's what America would want anyway. Mm-hmm. So you've got to think, what is the good outcome? The good mm. outcome, in my opinion for imperialist forces such as America is the destabilization of these nations. So, you know, Afghanistan being in ruins, I don't think is a problem for Americans. And, you know, this might fall under the conspiracy theory kind of aspect of it, but I'm going to draw examples from, you know, the guerrilla groups in Turkey. Mm. Uh, You know, whenever a politician needs a vote, let's say in Turkey, they say, oh, well, we're going to ramp up our efforts to get rid of the PKK. Or whenever something goes wrong, they say, oh, the PKK did this and did that and whatever. I feel like having a boogeyman to fight is better than killing the boogeyman because then you can justify your actions and your military presence within a country if you Mm. allow that, you know, the the scary bad guys Mm. to remain in place. Because for me, it doesn't make sense that a military as big as America's could not cause more damage to some mm. to a group like the Taliban. I feel as though having a destabilized region there was beneficial for them. And now I that f- they've sucked up as much of the resources as they can, and mm. you know, I believe the reason why they pulled out isn't for anything altruistic. It's literally it just didn't make economic sense anymore. Well, yeah, and I, I I think I'm in between what you said. So I do agree that that definitely has a part to play. But again, I really think we underestimate what it's like to fight there. For example, another shocker was the Vietnam War, right? And yeah. that for sure, you know, they would have stayed if they could have. Um, and no one would have guessed, you know, people with who built traps out of wood and, you know, dug tunnels underground and had, you know, really rubbish Chinese weapons would mm. beat the US who are basically just carpet bombing everything. So I think there's a military aspect to this, but also, like you said, 
what that's a very good question is what is the objective of the americans in afghanistan if you truly believe they want to liberate women and and you're an idiot i'm sorry because like that's just like, not how global politics works yeah I'm it sorry. doesn't work that way i'm sorry like you know oh yeah then when they actually funded the taliban what were they thinking of back then Do you know what i mean it's not they don't care about social policies uh, I th- in my opinion, it was uh, more of a control in the region for uh, Iran because mm. Afghanistan is a very key country that borders Iran. And if you look at all the other countries which they've invaded in the region, they all happen to border Iran. So, mm. you know, resources, strategic position, there's a bunch of things, but it's all short-term gains. They, d- they never really cared about the long-term uh, position of Afghanistan. For example, uh, I was watching a documentary with a German-Afghan person who runs a charity and he was explaining how, you know, it's it was impossible to do anything in Afghanistan regarding charity without paying people, uh, government officials, br- insane amounts of bribe money. Mm. And if the American government put this government into place, you know, surely they have some blame. And although he did not like, obviously, he fled from the Taliban and from the war in that region, although he doesn't like the Taliban, his first comment was instantly you can feel that the corruption in that sense has disappeared at that level i'm sure it will, it will return at some level you can never get rid of it but my mm. point is what the government they had in place was a shoddy government and it didn't really represent yeah the people. i think uh any government that's been put into place by anybody other than the people of that country is always going to be a shoddy government the you know any kind of despot leader that's been put into place by an outer external power will only act to uh to further the interests of that power. So as you said, okay, maybe um, a, a government of sorts, an American sanctioned government was in place in Afghanistan, but the reason why they didn't have a lot of support and part of the reason as to why that government fell so quickly was because they themselves were also corrupt and corrupt in the sense of they done things that would further the American agenda within Afghanistan rather than furthering the, mm. the agenda of the Afghani people. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, as you said, like the alternative, like what America's brought to Afghanistan in the time that they've been there has not necessarily been uh, prosperous for the people of Afghanistan. Mm. So, you know, in my opinion, to an extent, I agree with you that it was very inevitable that that government would fall. I just didn't think it would fall as quickly. And you have to question, you have to question the speed of it. Because someone who's, you know, I've, I've heard people say, oh, yeah, because they're, you know, military maniacs. In a week's time, even if you are a military maniac, you know, very well coordinated, which they're not. They're, they're not, very they're distinct bunch groups. Of, they're a bunch of idiots with guns, bro. They're yeah, not, yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're, let's not give the Taliban too much credit here. They, they, they're but not no, exactly. But e- even militarily, for example, this is the main problem that the Americans had with the Taliban was that, you know, you can't barter with the group because each, you know, they're just a collection of people that are called the Taliban at that point. But for example, you can't pay off one group that you think is the Taliban and then expect the rest to topple over as well. There's no hierarchy in this sense, in the Mm. strict sense. And so, you know, for for a group like that to take over in a week and for you to suggest that, you know, it wasn't helped by, um, you know, uh, people who, honestly, in my opinion, I think the military gave up because they didn't have any faith in the current government. They'd rather take a risk. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, you can't train a military for like 10, 15 years, or 20 years, and then have them give up like that when you give them, you know, the most advanced weapons without any bloodshed as well. 
without yeah. any bloodshed means there's an agreement. There's some kind of understanding that we want to move on. You know, rightly or wrongly, I think the people there have made a decision in a sense. So um, yeah, what I wanted to touch on as well is the history of Afghanistan, because, you know, we talk about now, but people don't understand, uh, you know, the modern history of Afghanistan and how Afghanistan became to be. Uh, maybe I can give you like some background. Yeah, sure. So in 1946, uh, Afghanistan was a uh, monarchy, actually. And what happened was very interesting is that when the king died, um, I believe one of his sons, I think his name was uh, Zahir, took over as king and removed all of the powers that the king has and instituted, uh, put in a democratic government. So he had the long-term vision for Afghanistan to become a democratic state, um, completely stripped his own power and gave it to, um, uh, and created a, uh, you know, prime minister kind of uh, political freedom. Uh, By the policy. way, Steve, yeah. I don't mean to cut you off, but I, th- I don't know if it's Zaire or if it was the king before him, but we went to school with one of the great-great-grandchildren, granddaughters, they were twins, of mm. the last king of Afghanistan. That's crazy. Yeah. You, you know who they are. I won't say their names. I know, I'll tell yeah. you after. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So we've actually gone to, you know, we, we, we've been around royalty people. Let you know. But, uh, yeah, you then ask yourself the question, you know, how can royalty be excluded from their own country? But... Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. This is this is groundbreaking. Even in you know in global politics, for someone to have that kind of long term vision and selflessness uh, to be unsel- uh, un you know ungreedy selflessness, Stephen. Selflessness. My I'm God. sorry, my listeners, but for what? someone to be that, yeah, I know I'm I'm very cultured. <laughs> but someone fobby. to be that, I'm a fob. Okay, but someone to be that ungreedy really like speaks you know highly of of the future of the nation. Um, from then. Uh, basically, uh, at that point, we knew that the Cold War was happening. It was around 1953, 1964, where both the US and the uh, Soviet Union were pulling on both sides, essentially. They were asking, you know, for, uh, to do favors for them for the, to win over Afghanistan, this newly democratic country. Um, and the prime minister at that point, you know, he has a very famous saying, and you probably heard it before. He said that the, the, best, uh, the best way to smoke a cigar it's the smoke an American cigar lit up with a Soviet lighter. What he meant by that was to play both sides. So, for example, he took aid from the American side in terms of uh, he, a lot of students were sent to America for free for education. Um, he received a lot of like money aid, a lot of food aid uh, to help stimulate the economy. But on the other side with the Soviets, his military was trained up by the Soviet Union. So he was basically playing both sides. Um, but some people say, some historical commentators say that this was the downfall of uh, Afghanistan because many years later, when the, um, the entire uh, Soviet ar- uh, Afghan army was trained by the Soviets and then the educated political class was uh, trained by the Americans, there was a split in society between communism thought and uh, capitalist thinking. And from then on... Um, this is where the trouble started happening. Uh, I believe the prime minister at the time was assassinated by a Soviet military leader. And there was back and forth, basically capitalism versus socialism. And the Taliban at this point were never involved. Uh, they were basically villagers very far. They didn't care about, you know, upper class uh, politics. They lived in their own villages. It didn't concern them until the Soviets dropped um, 
uh, basically leveled a city for uh, uh, damaging one of the prime minister's cars, I believe. It was rolling through and they, someone threw a rock or something. And the Soviet Union absolutely obliterated the city in the, in the uh, mountains. And this is when the Taliban was born. Um, you know, they, they decided to take up arms. Uh, like you said, the Mujahideen at that point, they were called. And the US obviously approached them and said, hey, you know, you're a bad guy. He's our bad guy too. So how about, you know, we get in bed together and let's do this properly. So, you know, with that context in mind, this was the development of Afghanistan. And you can see that in the end, uh, really uh, foreign involvement, just um, it was a, a potentially prosperous uh, nation. You know, they have a lot of resources. You know, had a lot of educated people back then. Um, you can see how that burnt them in the end. Um, well, you're telling me uh, the Americans and the USSR trying to measure dicks ended up ruining a once prosperous country. Say it ain't so, Steve. Right, I can't so. believe that's happened for the yeah, millionth goddamn time. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, yeah, that seems to be like a general um, pattern, what you've just described there. Mm. Uh, you can apply that sort of thing to pretty much any country that's very destabilized at the moment, and you, you'll find some sort of uh, past or history in which... Mm you know, two superpowers or three superpowers or whatever kind of use that one country as a proxy to fight a war against one another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's a it's a very difficult situation. I mean, there's some news reports coming out of uh, Afghanistan with regards to the, the new leadership under the Taliban and stuff like, um, you know, you're hearing folk singers being dragged out into the middle of the road and shot because, you know, you know, music is haram apparently. Um and you're seeing you're seeing them kind of respond to uh, journalists who ask them, "Well, will women be in positions of power?" With just laughter, you know, they're not having it at all. And you're kind of worried about, you know, okay, fine, what's happens happened, I guess. What is the next steps for Afghanistan, and what's going to happen going forward? Now, when people were trying to escape Afghanistan at uh, airport, there was a bombing. Now that bombing led to, I think, nearly 170 dead. It was claimed by ISIS-K, which is like a, I don't know, it's not, apparently it's not the same ISIS as the one in Syria. It's like a tribute act or something. It's a, it's a completely <laughs> different group. Um, and they've claimed responsibility for that bombing. And so now what has been kind of talked about in the media, especially in the UK, is, well, Boris Johnson's offered them money, basically, to, you know, quote, unquote, keep the peace. Now, from the story that you've just explained with you know, the Mujahideen being funded by the Americans to fight off another bad guy. I just feel like this is a cyclical thing now because now you're saying, okay, yeah, we'll fund them again to fight another third party. It's insane. I'm I not think- sure if the yeah the right direction for the UK is to start funding the Taliban. I mean, well, we can argue we've already done that, but to continue to fund the Taliban and openly fund the Taliban. Um, yeah. What's your thoughts on that? I think, in my opinion, the most important thing for Afghanistan is stabilization. You know, be it the Taliban, be it whoever, let them have a stable government and a kind of rule of law. Um, they've been missing that for 20 years. Um, so, you know, we've yeah, but uh, rule of law and the, the Taliban, Steve, that seems but, bit... yeah, but, but like to have the, you know, to have the upty nose to say, oh, I'm going to fix it within, you know, I'm going to war you within like five years and fix it all. You're only going to re- press the restart button again with someone new. Let them have a stable government, a stable uh, situation for the for the people to socially improve on by themselves. But you know, surely we, you can't accept the kind of things that the 
Taliban are implementing within the no, country. No, no, I don't it's accept. It's a massive regressive step back. I, I don't accept. Would your, yeah. sorry, would your um, kind of, would your approach be basically to use diplomacy and maybe over a couple of generations try to change thing on a, things on a social yes. level rather yes. than to, you know, as you said, reset the whole war aspect of it? Their people will push social change over, like I said, over generations, over years, it, it will change because it's, you know, it's what people want. And then politics is at play. It's no longer war that's at play. But, you know, if we keep pretending that, you know, bombing it again and again and reset, reset, Taliban, ISIS, duh, duh, you know, how many times are we going to reset it until people realize, how about we just stick our nose out of the country's business, let it settle at whatever level it's in. And human beings always look for progress. They always look for to do better. The you thing know? is, though, my only worry about that is obviously women children you know vulnerable groups are going to be at even more uh vulnerable situations at the moment i mean they obviously they are very repressive groups so although yes i agree in the long term you might need diplomacy in the short term how do you ensure that those people are safe this is but the you, problem you, i mean you know like safety is relative erin i was listening to a um a u.s soldier he was describing what he saw in afghanistan you know and it's literally, you know, forget about just instant rights. It's life or death at that, at that point during the war. Um, you know, kids rolling. There was, he had a story which, you know, if you're squeamish, fast forward 15 seconds or 20 seconds. But a, a man and his father, he'd see him every day. And then one, one of these days, his father just ran towards the, the US soldier and tried to blow himself up. You know, the kid didn't know it was his dad. He runs around the corner and he slips in his dad's guts and stuff realizes that what, what he's in and runs off, you know, traumatized for the rest of his life. You know, do we, do we want a repeat of these violent, violent, you know, absolutely no sense of structure lifestyle for these people, which will breed more Taliban's more, you know, extremist minds, or do we say, okay, look, this is a long-term project with a nation building, let it settle. It's some form of a structure, it's some form of a rule of law. They have their own standards but their standards will increase because the people will demand it over time. This is how this is how diplomacy well, I mean, and state building works. Let, you know, let's, let's, yeah. let me make a counter argument to that though. So then, let's say your the increase of child brides rises exponentially. The the kind of lifestyle that is afforded to women, uh, people who are you know LGBT or you know, any, anyone who's basically a minority or somebody who goes against the, the kind of state-approved dogma that's been put into place by this new group is going to have such a terrible quality of life. I mean, sure, they're not being blown up and they might, you know... But do you first not of all, think, they could you not be think still it's happening being, already? You know, lined up and shot on the streets, right? But the thing is, it's like... Mm. Okay, I, for me personally as well, I think you need social change over a period of time, but... As I said, in the short term, I mean, that can't be allowed either, though. That, this is the thing that I'm saying. Like, you know, you're seeing people literally be dragged out into the middle of the road and shot in the head over minute things. Yeah, yeah. You're but, still but allowing point, a life and death point situation is, take place. My point is, it, was, it would still be taking place even if it would be worse at war. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's not pretend like, it, oh, this is a sudden change. Like, it probably is 100% worse when there was no police when there was no, you know, kind of structure at, at all. Yes, this is going to happen. And it's like, I concede that for sure. But it's, it's a bit naive to think, yeah, but if we reset it, you know, all these problems go away. 
No, it'll just be overshadowed by bigger problems until they settle again, the dust clears, and then you see the problem arise again. You know, mean, LGBT. Me, or, personally, yeah, me personally, my argument I would make is you're spending around 70 trillion a year to continue the embargo on Cuba, for example. Surely you can hit the, the Taliban with economic sanctions before you hit them with like war and force their hand to allow certain things to take place rather than to just leave it complete. Like, that's why I'm saying we can't necessarily leave it completely. We'll have to have some sort of, we have to put something in place to protect, you know, at-risk groups. No, I, I agree. And this is where, you know, like I said previously, when the Shah took off his, his power and what was the first thing he did? He sent people to get educated, you know. The, and you can't do this at a point where, you know, you don't know if you're going to live next, the next hour. You can't do these kind of things. But when the Taliban settle and now it comes down to statementship, you know, they need to improve their nation. They need to make more money. There's only one way to do that. And it, this is how you push nations into improving. And they, again, like I said, their own people will demand it. So uh, I think war is the totally wrong option. Totally. You know, it's not the way you fix things. It's a reset button. And, it's, uh, and it should be considered only at the very extreme moment. But like you said, there are, there are genuine ways you can steer a country. For example, the Taliban have been begging, basically, to be included in the UN. You know, perhaps you put, as the UN, with powers, you say you, will, you can be included if you hold yourself to this standard. Do you know what I mean? And you, keep pu- you push them in the right direction with, this, with the carrot and not the stick. But you do have to remember as well that these aren't, these aren't sane people like the Taliban are insane and they they have very insane ideas of how the world should be run so even if you say to them okay like for example you said to them uh, women must go to school and they must you must have an employment rate for women to be you know somewhat uh, matching to their percentages within society so if like for example 50% of your country are women 50% of women should be in work or 50% I mean, of your workforce jump, should yeah. be in 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 work sorry um 50% of your workforce should be women. So let's say you said something like that. What is the likelihood that a, a group of absolute, you know, insane people such as them would even begin to consider that sort of thing? So it's like... Yeah, but like that is an extreme jump. Like from where they're at until now, that's an extreme jump. But you can put in certain human rights values that they have to stick to. That isn't an extreme jump. And this is how it's done. You do it but incrementally. Like what, what, what would be your idea of what isn't an extreme jump for example you guarantee the living rights of these group of peoples you know so you say don't kill them basically yeah and by the way that is progress now you can't you can't you can't tell them overnight you know oh open up nightclubs uh, around your corner shops yeah and, Steve, uh, there's a difference between saying open up nightclubs and there's a difference between saying well don't kill people i mean i feel like the don't kill people part should be no no but anyway, you, you right? said you know i want 50 percent of your nation uh if you're if your woman representative is 50 percent, i want them to so be all be employed tomorrow by and i want it well, to no, be you, i was using the 50 percent thing as like uh just uh you know, but this is what i'm saying speech so to saying. speak but like that's what i'm saying let's say yeah. this okay yeah, fine let me be super specific 10% of working age women at the very least need to be in employment. 10%. To say, oh, this standard that I'm going to set for this group is you don't kill these people. Well, Steve, there's a lot of ways where you cannot kill someone but make their life so terrible that they will just kill themselves. 
Yeah, no, of course, but there's what, a certain, I think like, what you there's don't a difference understand. between yeah. there's a difference between allowing a person to live, as in to survive, and allowing a person to live. No, Do you understand? I, like, I, there, I, I agree, we, you know, there's some sort of sanction needs to be put into place to say, okay, well, if if this is the situation in Taliban in Afghanistan now, where the Taliban have taken control, let's say they want to be a part of the UN, or they don't want to be hit with an embargo, or they don't want to be hit with you know, further sanctions that are going to fuck them up in the long term, then you need to set into place some serious, uh, you know, some serious negotiations, not not just don't kill people, but uh, yeah, provide yeah, at least 10% this or... I agree, you know, I agree. It, there's, going to be a lem- uh, there's going to be a level of negotiation between how we make incremental steps. It's not going to be what you initially suggested. Hopefully it'll be more than what I suggest. But my point is, this is the way you do it. You don't expect Afghanistan to be solved in five years. You don't even expect it to be solved in 20 years. Do you know what I mean? Like within a li- our lifetime, like nothing has been solved in the UK. So <laughs> how are you going to expect that to be solved in a nation like that, which has a very complex, violent history? You know, you need to take, you need to take this as a long-term project, create stability, involve them in, in, the, in the international community. And then like you said, you know, if, they, if they, they're going to see the gains and if they want to continue on this path, they have to abide and they will abide. This is how it works. Yeah, I, my I think, point is like, um, let, I think the disagreement be... we're having is between what is the minimum expected standard for saying, okay, fine, we'll negotiate with them. For me, I just don't think that we should set the bar, even in the first instance, as low as maybe you For example, my, my first expected standard, if, if I was uh, a policymaker in the UN, it would be education. It would be straight away, women need education. If we're talking on this gender issue, this is the first step. Before you even think about employment, because let's be honest, they probably don't even have the jobs to support both men anyway, uh, uh, just men itself. So the first things first is to involve women in society. Say, you must involve girls in education, full stop. If you don't, we're going to sanction you. I think this is a measurable step that has a big impact in the society. But it's not a big enough. It's not a too big of a step for them to disengage. Do you so see what I mean? They, no, but they, what you're saying there is exactly what I'm saying. Because let's say you educate the, these women, what do you do? Just have educated women running around with nothing to do. No, but like, so of course, you then yeah. want to see that this will happen in, in some way. Term. Translate to women in the workforce, and also look again when it comes to state represent representation. When you were a group that was fighting the occupation forces, that's one thing. But now if you're saying, okay, we're going to set up a parliament, I'm going to set the bar incredibly low. Let's say you've got, I'm just making up, I don't know how many they'll have, but let's say you've got like 500 seats, Mm. at least five of them. So five of them should be women. Mm -hmm. Right. But when you, when you're watching the interviews and the way that they're kind of reacting to things, it's, they don't seem to be interested in doing any of that at all. So then my yeah. thing is, if, if you've got somebody like Boris Johnson saying, we'll pay you money, we'll give you money to do X, Y, Z, to bring peace in the region. It's like, well, that's not good enough to tell them to now fight ISIS-K or ISIS-Z or ISIS-Y. Do you know what I mean? These, these random splinter groups. If we're giving them money, then we've got nothing to hold over them anyway. No, no, All I, we have right yeah. now is an economical uh, you know, stranglehold over them. That's it. We have money. They don't. They want money. We can give it. But... If you say, I'm going to give you money for simple things such as don't kill anyone and actually, you know what, kill the, kill the uh, spin-off groups. 
that that's that shouldn't be the standard that we're setting and I, i'm really really disgusted that that was even considered an option i don't i don't know if they're going to go forward with that i wouldn't be surprised if they will go forward with that given the taliban money but let's see how things develop if you want let's maybe move on to the next mm. little bit about about maybe can discussion. i say one more thing yeah just to wrap up i agree with you but I, th- I think this is a process that will take longer than we expect i don't think this is something that will be solved in the next five or ten years and i, I think if the international community doesn't have patience with this region it's going to blow up again it's very very volatile i mean i give it three years before we're back in taliban and taliban in afghanistan <laughs> i give it three years three years i give it three Listen. years i Listen. will be I, you know what I, honestly i think maybe even in a year Mm-mm. i don't see this kind of oh we're pulling out of afghanistan to last very long at all mm. uh, that being said so the next thing to maybe discuss with regards to this topic is Priti Patel, obviously, uh, head of the you know Home Office, is saying that uh, if they try to come over here, we'll send them back. You know, they they're saying you, you can't go and help people who are stranded in between, you know, the UK and the, France in the sea. You can't go get them from the Channel. People are going to turn up here because they're avoiding a war in Afghanistan. You know, what do you think should be the next steps with regards to helping these people out? In my opinion, obviously, being the son of a migrant mm. and so on, you know, for me, it's like, yeah, let, let's have them. Do you know what I mean? But obviously, the country that we live in and the voting patterns show that there's a great distaste towards anyone who isn't, you mm. know, quote unquote, naturally from here. But so here's, here's what do you opinion. think is going to happen? My opinion is this is the result of policies that you set 20 years ago. Like, it's just delayed. So this, we can't stop. This is not something... Like, even if you... I mean, what I found, I thought it was disgusting what she said of just send them back in the middle of the sea, you know, when they're in a dinghy. You know, the French are not going to help you, neither are the English. You know what that really means? It means let them die, you know, as, as, as like a... In a nice way. Oh, no, just send them back. No one's going to help. They're just going to die in the sea. So for me, that was absolutely disgusting. But if I go back to my initial point, this is the chickens coming home to roost and we cannot change this effect. Even if they do that, people are still going to land on the UK shores, you know, regardless. I think we need to start stop thinking reactively and start thinking proactively in, like we said, guiding the nations into developing. Because if people are able to live in their nation, then they won't be migrating by force. You know, people don't run away from their homes, their families, you know, with nothing. Uh, out, of the, out of pure will. People do it out of extreme conditions. So in the future, when we make political action or political moves, we need to think, how does this, you know, does it A, destabilize a country? Because if it does, you have to accept that in 10 years or in 10, 15 years, people are coming, whether you like it or not, you know? And there's this, uh, there's this like idea that we can just, you know, have a huge fence and just stop everyone. Even if you are hell bound on stopping people, people are going to arrive. It's very easy. It's, it doesn't take that much. So it's, it's, a something, it's something that the nation needs to consider if they really, really care about migration. They really need to consider their long-term actions from their short-term gains. Okay, so there's a, there's a documentation uh, that you can find on the Parliament website, uh, Commons Library, uh, where they've said there are around 2.5 million UNHCR registered refugees from Afghanistan globally. The majority, 2.2 million, are in Iran and Pakistan. 
The UK Home Office announced a resettlement scheme for Afghans. Uh, the UK intends to resettle around 5,000 Afghan nationals at risk in 2021 and up to 20,000 in the longer term. Now, for all the people who say, oh, well, why don't they go somewhere that's closer to Afghanistan? Why are they coming all the way to the UK? Then come to the UK, then they can go uh, elsewhere, etc. Well, the reality is, as much as the UK acts as if all the immigrants in the world comes to the UK, right here, six days ago, published by the Commons Library uh, on the Parliament website, it states clearly that there's 2.5 million ref registered refugees and 2.2 million of them are in Iran and Pakistan. So only 300,000 are left. Yep. And of that 300,000, the UK is expecting 5,000 this year and will only house 20,000 in the long term. So it's like we need to kind of be realistic about what the UK actually does for, for migrants in the long term anyway. Hmm. You know, the UK and the politicians within it act as if all of the migrants are coming here and we're going to be overrun. But the reality yeah. is that's just not the case. It's difficult to get to the UK anyway, exactly. just because of the geographic location of the countries where these people are fleeing from. So we don't actually have that many anyway. Hmm. And, you know, you might say, oh, 5,000 is a lot, but it's not really. I mean, if you were to, um, I think there was a report that came out recently. If you were to... Uh, take away all the uninhabited houses in the UK, you would be able to house hundreds of thousands of uh, refugees from around the world because there's a lot of properties in the UK that actually aren't used nowadays. They aren't used. They're just brought for, you know, uh, as commercial property, but they aren't actually used. So even if you just said squatters rights, <laughs> you could house mm -mm. all these people and many more, all like 10 times over. Mm-mm. Look, so my those are the numbers, yeah. innit? I've given you the yeah. numbers. You, you tell me what you think about that. I mean, that, that for me, I was, I was going to bring it up and I'm glad you did. The share proportionally of what we're getting is absolutely nothing. And um, yeah, like you said, these neighboring countries like Iran, uh, Pakistan, and I believe even Turkey has a big role to do because they're the middle ground, right? And they probably do use that politically. But beside that, the UK share is tiny. And the fact that we're bothered by that, it's, uh, it's interesting just socially um but again yeah, i mean especially as you said the uk and america in particular like you know the two old friends the old chums the, the amount of damage that they've done to that region as a whole through their policies it's like the fact that there's only five thousand people coming here you should count your lucky stars if yeah do you know what i mean if if really the realistic you're you're genuinely thinking that there's only only five thousand people coming here then why are you complaining? Even if it was 20,000 people coming mm. in one year, not even in the long term, still, I yeah, mean, exactly. when you consider the amount of people that other countries are having to take up because of your actions, because of the policies that you set into place, I mean, it seems really like, you know, it's kind of like you're laughing in the point. face of the people my who point. you've done this to. The government, the UK government knows this for sure. You know, when, they, when they're deciding to invade, they know what's going to happen. And they see this is as a good trade-off. They don't care. But my issue is the public obviously cares deeply. We, we know the British public and how they feel about migrants. So there's a disconnect between the public opinion and, you know, warmongering opinion. That For them, it's a win-win. It's, it's a like you said, that's nothing. Wow, we're winning. For the public, it's like, oh my God, why are they coming here? How about you put pressure, you know, on politicians when it comes to future invasions to not get involved in in external Steve, affairs that don't relate to us 
the funny part is the very same people who are like, oh God, I hate immigrants are the very first to be frothing at the mouth to go into war. Yeah. This is, exactly. this, is the, this is the sad part of it all. The very same people, like for example, Jeremy Corbyn was against the Iraq war, right? And people were, people were yeah, sticking yeah. on anyone who was against the Iraq war at the time. People were frothing at the mouth to go into Iraq. Mm. The reality is, Nowadays, the very same people who ended up complaining about the immigration from Iraq and the Middle East following that war are the ones who were at the time frothing at the mouth and telling Jeremy Corbyn that he was a tree hugger or something. Do you know what I mean? It's like, Hmm. this is just a repeat pattern that we always see. It's unfortunate, but unfortunately, I can guarantee you in a couple years time, those same people again will say, let's go back into Afghanistan or just, you know, spin the globe, put your finger on somewhere randomly and just assume there's going to be another country that they're going to invade. Mm. They know they will never stop. Invasions will never stop. Every country will always look to invade another country at some point. Yeah. Whatever that next country may be, the same people that are complaining about immigration today will be the first ones saying we should invade that country. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? I wish they all came, man. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> you deserve it, man. I can't even lie. Like, it, when I think about it, it's such hypocrisy. But, Obviously, they don't understand the implications. You know, they, they don't think mm-hmm. long term. And so this is the issue when people vote in politics and how people understand politics. It's a very short-term vision. But yeah, I mean, this is actually, like you said, we, we're getting off lightly in terms of the migration statistics. So I don't yeah, know. Many, I don't many other any countries plans. take on way more than we do. So it's it's the kind of cheek of it all as well. It's, very, it's, it's kind of interesting to watch. And from the outside, mm-hmm. you can see what kind of, uh, just an absolute mess we have become as a country. You can just see it from the outside. I'm sure other people are looking at the UK and going, what is wrong with these lot? Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, like speaking of the UK and things going wrong, you know, I feel like we've talked about Afghanistan for as much as we can in this episode for the time being. Hmm. You know, let's look at some internal affairs. Should we it just, yeah. Should sorry. we go on to the bonus episode for that? Should we? Yeah, okay. Well, we can go on to the bonus episode. So, uh, so are we cutting this episode here then? All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to us. Uh, really appreciate it. Season three, episode one. That's done. If you want to listen to some more bonus content, so uh, bonus episodes, you can sign up to our Patreon. All the money we make there will be going to Solace Women's Aid uh, for this year. And uh, yeah, if you join on there, you'll just help us grow and we'd really appreciate it. So uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Uh, Steve, why didn't you say who said having fun and being serious can't go hand in hand? That was bloody brilliant.